0: Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. On today's agenda, we are talking to Chase Strangio, who is a really incredible activist for trans rights. And uh, he's also a staff attorney at the ACLU. He and I had a conversation about a couple of cases that the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments on just a few weeks from now that will have really, really serious implications for the way employees are able to express their gender in the workplace. Hi, Anne Friedman. Hi, Ami <laughs> <laughs> How's it going over there? You know, getting by. Getting by. Like, truly, um... That is the most accurate
1: answer I have for you. What about you? I feel like you stole my answer. Uh, (laughs) It's been a tough week over here. We're still here. Um, Like my favorite nurse at the hospital always says, she's like, that's a lot for one baby to carry. And I'm like, thank you for calling me a baby. (laughs) I love that. That's so tender. It really is. But I also think she thinks I'm nine years old. I'm going to be a little grateful for her for a second. That's oh my so God. Nice. Shout out to nurse Christine, the best. Well, when our bodies are not betraying us and uh, we feel better about everything else. One of the things I'm excited about is going on tour. Yes. This fall, this fall, mere weeks away. In fact, mere weeks away. Where are we going Anne? We're going to Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> she said it right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Detroit, Denver, Austin and Houston, Texas.
1: Woo! All ticket information is at callyourgirlfriend.com/tour. I will say that historically, not to pat ourselves on the back, but I will pat ourselves on the back. Our shows are hella fun. <laughs> bring a friend, bring more than one friend. Come have a good time with us. A good time will be had by all, guaranteed. Yeah, we will see you like so so soon. Also, I have to say the merch is fire. So, you know, if you're down for some limited edition merch, definitely come to the live show.
0: Oh yeah. Thank you for bringing up merch. Cause I had like a quick note about that too. So we have this very popular hat in our current merch run, which says the scam is structural. It's like a very cute denim cap that has proved extremely popular. Like uh, we only ordered, so this is some backstory about CYG merch is that we are a teeny tiny operation. Like uh, we don't take out loans or like lines of credit to fund new products. We basically are just like, what do we have in the bank and what can we make with that and then sell it? Like we are the most financially conservative outfit you have ever seen. And therefore we didn't know how this hat was going to sell. We've never made a hat before and we only ordered 30.
1: (laughs) Wait, this is our
0: first hat? Wait, this is our first hat. And, um, and the hat proved very, very popular. So not only did the first run of 30, our next two conservative restocks of 100 also sold out. And so now we're in the process of like, okay, we are going to stretch ourselves and reorder like a ton more and also put that lovely Scam is Structural Design by our assistant designer, Brigitte Morris, who is great. We're going to put that design on some other things too. But all, all of this is to say, I'm just letting listeners know if they've been frustrated because they can't get their hands on a hat, that it's coming. And the reason it's slow in coming is because we are a teeny tiny business. We are not Amazon and we move
1: a little slower and a little smaller. Okay. So I'm going to speak for the frustrated listener because... <laughs> As one, of, wow. as one of them and I have also not received a hat and anytime I see someone post one online I'm so jealous I want to claw inside the the phone but also hundreds of thousands of people listen to this show can we get a hat please Okay. Well,
0: listen, hundreds of thousands of people may listen, but like our ability to gauge what they want to buy is is not real. I mean, we are not doing like sophisticated, like audience buying research as if merch is our core business. Our core business is a podcast. So like we are, <laughs> we are not always fully aware. We're not always fully aware of like what our listeners actually want to buy. Like we've done surveys and like sometimes that's an indication, but like truly the level of popularity of this hat is a delightful surprise but a surprise nonetheless and also p.s mine just arrived yesterday so it's possible that wow. like it's sitting in your mailbox you got a
1: hat and i haven't gotten a hat who do i have to call at this podcast that oh i am a third owner of to get my merchandise carly Anse knowles you know who to call <laughs> come on <laughs> the hat is flames i can't wait for everyone to get it thank you and carly and Berger for all your hard work
0: Oh wow, one eighty! I'm loving
1: it. (laughs) Listen, you know me; I only complain because I love.
0: Okay, so let's actually do our core business, which is the podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Aminatu has left the chat. (laughs) I came here. I came here to get a denim dad hat. Um, Oh Oh, also, wait. Before we move on from the hat, though, remember how I always say that my head is too big for hats.
0: because like that's true
1: like i have never found a baseball hat that fits my big head and hair but a really kind cyg listener from australia actually sent me this a weird thing on amazon that like stretches your hats and so i ordered it and i will report back about whether i can stretch this hat into submission because if that is the case it's gonna be very exciting fall for me
0: I mean and that is the exact reason why we are making like putting that scam of structural design on other things because like we wanna be we wanna be responsive to people who are just like not into hats or whose heads are not compatible with the standard baseball hat. We are like really trying hard to like make some more options too. Wow. Because Queens we know that of part of Inclusivity. Slow moving, small batch <laughs> queens of inclusivity. <laughs>
1: Love it. Artisanal <laughs> merch shop. Okay. Art,
0: artisanal, yes. Okay. All right. Core business. So, on today's agenda, we are talking to Chase Strangio, who is a really incredible activist for trans rights. And uh, he's also a staff attorney at the ACLU. He and I had a conversation about a couple of cases that the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments on just a few weeks from now that will have really, really serious implications for the way employees are able to express their gender in the workplace. And that means, yes, like trans employees for sure. And he'll explain sort of the stories at the heart of these cases that the court is hearing. But it also means any of us and the gender stereotypes we do or don't conform to and how we dress and the pronouns we use and all the various ways we live at our jobs and out in the world. Basically, like the Trump administration is trying to do some horrible things to the Civil Rights Act and attorneys like Chase are valiantly standing in their way.
1: Uh, This is so... um Frustrating is not even the word. It's so cruel because the Trump administration has taken so many steps to legalize anti-trans discrimination. The obsession is not lost on all of us who are paying attention, but the just how short-sighted and mean and, and awful it is, is something that is just like, that's going to stay with me for a really long time because there is no there is no reason to be wasting anybody's time doing this there's no reason to use you know like title seven of the civil rights act to basically enact new kinds of discrimination that i think we're all agreed should not be there
0: right and i'm gonna read a little a little segment here um chase wrote an opinion piece that we'll link to in the show notes um for NBC News in which he really explains the stakes, I think, really well. He writes a ruling in their favor, there being the Trump administration, Uh, A ruling in their favor could drastically change workplace protections for all women, whether or not they are LGBTQ Mm -hmm. and anyone who does not conform to the administration's preferred gender norms. That could include men with long hair, women with short hair, men who are primary caretakers of children or parents, women who wear pants and women who work outside the home or are the primary breadwinners it's almost as if the Trump administration is arguing that if trans people might get protected from employment discrimination, then it is best that there be no protections for anyone, which actually may be their end game. <sighs> same, same. I was,
1: I was, yes, same. Um, I know. And this is, but, so, and you know, like the, the thing about this too, that is frustrating is that this is why it's so important for everyone to be paying attention. A lot of things that usually affect trans people are relegated to like, oh, this is trans people problems. Even even the fact that like there is not a steady stream, like the media is not banging the steady stream of like, hey, this is dangerous. This is bad. This is not great. Like really illustrates that point for me. It's like this happened with the trans ban in the military. It's happening now with the Supreme Court cases. And that quote like so succinctly explains why everyone should be paying attention because it's not just about one thing. It really is about just like policing how everyone lives their lives. But also trans people shouldn't have to stand up for their rights alone. Like that is ludicrous and it's ridiculous and it's really offensive. I am just really hoping that over the next couple of weeks we start talking and hearing more about this because it's very dangerous.
0: Agreed. So let's listen to uh, Chase Strangio give us all of the details. Chase, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I have to start by asking you about this case that is set to be argued in front of the U.S. Supreme Court on October 8th. And I would love to hear you kind of tell me what is at stake in that case.
2: Yeah, so there are actually three cases that are going to be heard by the United States Supreme Court on October 8th. And the central question in the cases is, is it discrimination under federal law, specifically under Title VII, which prohibits discrimination because of sex, to fire someone because the person is LGBTQ? So all of these cases came up through the courts in instances where an employer, fired someone. And the only reason for the firing was either because the employee is gay or because the employee is transgender. So these are not cases where you have some factual dispute about were you a good employee or a bad employee? This is a a straight legal question about is it illegal to fire someone just because they're LGBTQ? A Um, clear cut case of bigotry. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You could look at it. Yeah, exactly. This is just, a, you know, these are not these employers are saying, yes, it is because you are trans. Mm-hmm. I do not like trans people. Um, totally. And so and so the question the court is is going to have to answer is, is it illegal under federal law to fire someone solely on that basis? And the the way that this this is coming up is under Title Seven. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that prohibits employment discrimination on the basis of sex. And for many, many years, LGBTQ workers have been able to get protections under this law. So this is not a new concept. Um, This is actually, and especially for trans folks, this is how we've been getting legal protections for decades. So the court is now going to decide as a final matter can we be protected under federal law as it exists today? And the stakes are enormous for two reasons. The first is that these are the protections that we have and have relied on for so many years, not just in the workplace, but also in the context of housing, schools, healthcare credit, and other areas of federal law that prohibit discrimination because of sex. So for LGBTQ people, what is on the line is truly the wholesale range of protections that we rely on to survive. So that's one thing is that, you know, this is the largest, in my view, LGBTQ case to come before the the court in my lifetime and probably ever. The second reason why I think everyone should be really focused on this case is that it is really sort of intuitive and sort of necessary to understand sexual orientation and transgender status discrimination as being because of sex. So the lower courts, for example, have for many years said, well, yeah, obviously it's because of sex when you fire someone for changing sex or because they are attracted to someone of the same sex. It's really impossible to conceptualize it any other way. And I think because the Trump administration and the employers defending these firings know that, the only way that they can really get the court to defend their position is to roll back sex discrimination protections for everyone. And so they're doing this in a way that I think should really scare us all. The argument that they're making is that, well, it's not really sex discrimination if you discriminate against men and women. And so what they're saying is Sorry, that, I shouldn't well, laugh at that, but also like... <laughs> right. It's yeah. like it's the, 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 the whole point of the statute is like it protects the individual and the employer can't target an individual worker because of their sex or their sex stereotypes. And so what is happening is the Trump administration and the employers are pushing for this understanding of Title VII that essentially says, no, no, we can, we can fire people because of sex stereotypes as long as we fire women for not conforming to sex stereotypes and men for not conforming to sex stereotypes. And that is so dangerous because the way that particularly cisgender women have achieved more, but clearly not enough, sort of equality in the workplace is because we've prohibited employers from enforcing stereotypes like, oh, women have to be mothers and stay at home, or women have to dress in a certain way, or women can't be assertive. That is the nature of the entire canon of sex discrimination law. And that is what they're asking the court to roll back in these cases. So it is alarming, not
0: just for LGBTQ people, but for all workers. I'm really struggling to understand how that's not a violation of the Civil Rights Act. Like, and like in my head, I'm like, so they're basically saying, like, okay, like, everybody has to conform to some rigid rules, and therefore, it's no big deal for anyone. Like, I, I, maybe you could say it a different way, because I'm still not quite getting it.
2: Yeah, well, one of the reasons you're not getting it is because it really doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, they're essentially <laughs> arguing, well, if we do two things wrong, then it's right. You know, right. it's like, you know, it's like two wrongs do make a right. It's sort of this sort of fundamental argument that they're putting forth. Um, and it, it is hard to understand because it's it's so counter to what we have come to understand as sex discrimination. And partly that's because the Supreme Court in 1989, in a case called Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins ruled that it was discrimination because of sex under Title VII to refuse to promote a woman because she was seen as too aggressive and masculine. So the court ruled many years ago that this is precisely what constitutes discrimination because of sex under Title VII. And the occasion of these cases is in many ways allowing a very conservative Justice Department and a very conservative set of employers to ask for a new rule for the context of employment that will roll that back in some fundamental ways and say, the only way you can violate Title VII is if you discriminate against men as a class as compared to women as a class. So if you had a policy that said, we won't hire women, Mm. sure that would violate the law. But if you said women have to you know, go home at five to take care of their, their children, but in turn, men have to stay after five because they're the primary breadwinners, that wouldn't violate Title VII because you're enforcing sex stereotypes against both, quote unquote, both sexes. You know, So it's a very binary, a very rigid, and a very constrained understanding of the law. And if this is a successful argument, then it doesn't just hurt LGBTQ people; it hurts everyone.
0: I'm struggling to stay in this conversation without going into a rage blackout. Honestly, <laughs> um, tell me, and tell that, me.
2: I, and, and I think, I think what, what I, I think that that is the act that the, the exact correct response. And 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 one of the things that that concerns me is that we've sort of slept on these cases in part because we're dealing in a moment of crisis when there's so much going on, and it's so hard to even stay on top of all of the horrible things that are happening with respect to civil rights and just basic human survival needs. But over the course of, you know, the last five years, the people who are now leading the government have systematically been pushing these arguments in court. And now they're at a point where they have the backing of the federal government and they have a federal judiciary that is more sympathetic. And we could be seeing a wholesale transformation of things that happened very quickly because we didn't understand the stakes
0: okay we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be right back with more from chase strangio talk about um, this making it in front of what is now a reconstituted and very conservative Supreme Court. What are we looking at here? Like in terms of what, I mean, I I don't want to ask you to crystal ball it, but like, what are the kinds of things that are going to come up in terms of the arguments? Is this going to be like, are we really arguing? Like, what are little boys made of? What are little girls made of? Like retrograde stuff like that?
2: Yeah, I mean I I think there there's sort of two things that are happening here and and so in the lower court the the justice department did sort of make this case that men and women are inherently different and should be treated differently in the workplace. Like we need to accept the differences, you know, the quote-unquote differences between the sexes. And that is is very much part of, of what's going on here. I think we're going to hear a lot during the arguments and we've seen a lot in the briefing about how you know sex is binary, it is determined at birth, it is tied definitionally to reproduction. And because of that, we need to account for it in a variety of ways in the workplace by treating men and women differently. And that is in some ways an argument that is designed to cast LGBTQ people out of public life. I mean, that is very much one of the primary goals. But I think we would be foolish to think it is their sole goal, because very much we're seeing elsewhere in this administration, the desire to systematically surveil and control people's bodies, the bodies of anyone who can become pregnant. Obviously, they have an agenda of restricting access to reproductive health care. They have the desire to systematically control and surveil the body of immigrants, of all people of color. So I think that we can see this fixation on sort of definitionally categorizing people in these discrete and sort of quote-unquote biological ways that is very much tied to an agenda of control um, and the elevation of the autonomy and power of some at the expense of others. And so it's easy to say this is just a case about trans people or this is just a case about LGB people and sure, Congress can fix it. You know, Title VII was just meant to present, you know, to protect cisgender, heterosexual people. End of story. And I think that's the sort of simplistic way to look at this. What I think is actually going on is that this is a moment where some really conservative norms are being pushed through the courts and I fear that people won't notice until it's too late.
0: Right. I also I can't help but think about that. One of the first things you said was the context for this, which is like we are dealing with an assault on the rights and freedoms of like a large swath of like people who live in this country from a lot of different directions. And I'm curious when you look at, for example, a lot of the different cases that you've been involved in that have to do with um, trans rights at the state level and other things happening nationally, like the military ban. Is it a coordinated, concerted effort? Is it just kind of like people with the same ideology are all coming into power at the same time? Like, I I have some questions about how the dots all connect here.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's 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 like a both and situation that it is very strategic, and a lot of the people who have this strategy have sort of come into power at the same time. And those are are related um, and, and happening at once. So, so one of the things that we've seen from the Trump administration since day one is a systematic attack on trans people in particular. So Trump, you know, is inaugurated in January of 2017. By February, Jeff Sessions and Betsy DeVos focus on rescinding Title IX guidance to protect transgender students, Soon after that, you have Trump tweeting the the military ban in July of of 2017. In 2018, you start to see other federal agencies begin to set their sights on, on trans people and redefining sex under federal law with the goal of excluding trans people definitionally from protection. And in the last few months alone, we've seen efforts from the Trump administration to roll back protections for trans people in the context of healthcare, in the context of shelter access. Um, and then of course, they're continuing to push these arguments about Title VII and, and employment through the federal courts. In part, this is the elevation of people whose careers were defined by these very arguments. Um, So one of the things that I point to is the fact that in our litigation over HB2 in North Carolina, for example, which was the anti-trans law that passed that state's legislature in 2016, the individuals who were defending HB2 on the side of the state of North Carolina are now... Leading the charge in various ways at the federal government. So, the person who defended UNC, for example, to defend HB2 is Noel Francisco. Noel Francisco is the Solicitor General of the United States now, which means that he is the person making these arguments to the U.S. Supreme Court defending this trans exclusionary definition of. Sex under Title Seven, and so these same people have been elevated to positions of power in part because they held these positions. And the reason why I think trans people are so centrally situated as a target um, within the the sort of GOP attacks on basic human rights is that we we sort of pose a threat inherently in their mind. to people like. Vice President Pence, for example, have a very particular vision of society that centers on controlling the bodies of women subordinate to their husbands. And that notion is dependent on constructing the idea of sex and sex bodies in a particular way that trans people feel very threatening to. And so part of situating that notion of the family and, in turn, that notion of society is expelling people who do not fit. And trans people are a very obvious example of people who do not fit. And so it is both central to the vision of society that a lot of people in power currently have to expel trans people and, I think, by extension, LGBTQ people And it is also true that this has been a set of strategies and things that has been in the works for a very long time that has been happening at the state level during the Obama years. And now we're seeing federalized through people who are now in power in the Trump administration.
0: Right And speaking of people who are now in power, um, you know, so the justices who are going to hear these arguments, I mean the do we know do we know something about where their leanings are on this question based on how they voted in the past or public statements they've made? I don't want to ask you to just tell me like how's it going to go, but like that's truly what I'm wondering when i when I hear you describe um, this kind of pipeline all the way up to the federal level and I think about, who is now installed on the court.
2: Yeah. So so I think one thing before before answering that question is like this is a moment to take stock of the unbelievable power of the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court in particular. Um, And this is obviously something that has been very much in the background of every political conversation over the past, you know, five years, which is the Supreme Court matters and it matters a lot. And the people on the court have an unbelievable amount of power and they are appointed for life. And that is also true of federal judges in the lower courts. And the Trump administration has completely transformed the federal judiciary and has pushed through so many judicial appointments that are going to impact our lives for generations. And I think that is something that I hope every single one of us Takes stock of and thinks about every time we cast a vote in any presidential election because this matters. Um, and the 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 right is incredibly effective at centering and prioritizing the courts. Now, when it comes to the Supreme Court in particular, these are nine human beings who have a, the power to decide almost everything in our lives in, in many ways. And this is not a favorable court for civil rights and, and sort mm-hmm. of survival of people who are not white, cisgender, heterosexual men. And that's just a fact. Now, does that mean we're definitely going to lose? No, no, it doesn't. Um, I think that there is a good chance we could win in part because we have a very straightforward textual argument that the law was written you know, and it used the word sex, and it says you cannot discriminate because of sex against an individual employee. And there is a very straightforward textual reading. Um, and, and in theory, textualism is a conservative approach to the law. Um, and, and so just as one example, Justice Scalia who was not known as the sort of progressive leader on the court, um, (laughs) which would be an understatement, wrote a unanimous opinion for the court, um, essentially in in another Title VII case called On Call, which was about whether or not same-sex sexual harassment was prohibited under Title VII. And what Scalia said was, essentially, it does not matter what the lawmakers who passed Title VII in 1964 intended to cover with the law because they wrote a broad statute. And it is our job as the court to apply the broad words of the statute as they are written and harassing someone, regardless of whether that harassment is between people of different sex or same sex. And even if sexual harassment was in no way contemplated at the time Title VII was passed, that is still within the plain text of the law. So Mm -hmm. there is a highly conservative way to rule for us that would be the same way that Scalia ruled for the plaintiff in on call um, for a unanimous court. Uh, So I I would say, you know, if Scalia was on the court, I would say we have a good chance. If if you're going to you know, be a, a strict textualist, we should win. Now, it doesn't always work out that way because sometimes people reverse engineer positions based on the outcomes that they want. And I think that... There is reason to believe that conservative justices don't want to have the law protect LGBTQ people. So that is the sort of reality that that we're dealing with. I do think that, you know, this is RBG's legacy. RBG brought sex discrimination cases as a litigator. This really is a continuation of her life's work. The question that is now before the court is, are we going to continue to recognize that the broad words of our civil rights statutes apply broadly? Or are we about to enter an era in which we are starting to seriously and quite dangerously roll back the protections that we've relied on for many years? And so so that's sort of what's happening before a changing court. And as always, there is no way to know how they're going to rule. And so hopefully we can see at least you know, a narrow victory that just holds the line for what has been. Um, And then we can do the work as advocates to ensure that we continue to have, you know, have and demand robust protections um, and expansive protections uh, from all aspects of government.
0: Yeah, you know, you I you brought up RBG, and I find myself thinking about um, a thing, a clip that I watched in the documentary about her, where she basically says that like justices consider precedent, and you know, and are interpreting like all of these, you know, they're interpreting the law and in cases and things like that. But there is also a role for culture and um, and what is happening in the world outside. The courtroom or outside their chambers, and um, and she kind of used that as an example to say that like it does matter to show up and protest or to show that there is um, a, a groundswell of belief in one way or another. And I'm I'm curious about. I know that one reason why we wanted to talk to you is we didn't feel like this case was creating that in this moment, right? And I'm wondering if you had thoughts for the folks who are listening about where their energies could possibly go, given that they are not one of the justices sitting on the bench hearing hearing this case and actually deciding, like, what can we do to kind of create an environment in which we encourage the direction that, you know, we want this to go in?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is incredibly important for people to understand, which is that even though litigation happens in the courtroom, legal change happens in the streets. And, and, and so, so so let me explain, because there's there's sort of two aspects of this. The first is, is sort of grounded in the fundamental limitations of the law, um, which is, you know, we can only do so much with a legal system that is inherently conservative. So even when we win in Congress, even when we win in court, In order to ensure that we truly win, we need to build power and community and we need to hold lawmakers and others in power accountable. So we only win in any meaningful way if all of the sort of types of organizing and pressure points are working in concert together. So a win at the Supreme Court is useless without a movement behind it to ensure that the sort of understanding of the law that is adopted by the court is actually implemented in people's daily lives, which requires both the dissemination of information through organizing as well as base and power building to ensure that people are able to survive long enough to even access their rights and feel empowered to push back when their rights are taken away from them. So there is a role to play every single day outside of legal work, and legal work is inherently conservative. And so we have to think of it as just one limited tool in a toolbox of of making sort of meaningful, transformative change. And then the second aspect of legal change that is sort of fundamentally sort of played out on the streets, especially when it comes to cases at the United States Supreme Court, is that as much as nine individuals are going to be deciding uh, the issue, uh, in, in, you know, ultimately. Those nine individuals are human beings, they're human beings who reside in the world, they look out from the court and see a set of cultural and political realities that they cannot extricate their thinking from. So what that means is that if we do nothing between now and October eighth, and now and whenever they decide this case, then the message we're sending is nobody cares. And that message will then come through in whatever legal opinion they write because they are inevitably, you know, sort of seeped in culture as much as everyone else. And sure, I think judges and people who sort of talk about the law in an academic sense like to talk about it as a science. It is not a science. It is an interpretive method to achieve (laughs) political you know, outcomes. And I would argue that, you know, many things about science are that too, but that's a digression. <laughs> but um, but but that, you know, ultimately, it is our responsibility as human beings who are engaged in the outcomes of, of decisions that people in power make to show how those decisions impact our ability to survive or not. And so it is incumbent incumbent upon all of us, I believe, between now and October when the case is argued and then, you know, between now and whenever it is decided sometime before June of 2020 to make noise, to say, no, we will not stand for a court that strips rights away from people. We will absolutely not sit quietly by while the court debates whether it is lawful to fire people, whether we should be enforcing gender stereotypes in the workplace, to, to sit and do nothing is incredibly dangerous and will impact an ultimate opinion that is written, taking away people's rights. And so some of the ways people can show up are just talking about it. Um, talk about these cases. Educate yourself about these cases. Being informed and mobilizing, whether it's having a rally on October 8th in DC, or in your hometown, whether it's sharing on social media and creating a groundswell of attention and knowledge about these cases that then translates into media coverage. It translates into people talking to their friends and families, talking about it in class, talking about it with friends. Those things make a difference. That's something that people should internalize as a way where they have agency and power to influence what's happening in places that seem completely inaccessible.
0: Right. Like, we cannot influence maybe the direct outcome, like, literally the decisions made, but we can definitely make sure that everybody is aware that this is happening. We can be talking about it. And, like, I really do think that one of the upsides of this super connected social media era is that we can kind of place some pressure on, like, people in positions of cultural power, you know, to say... This is something we're all paying attention to. I really appreciate that. Before I let you go, I want to ask if there is a place you recommend our listeners go for further information about what's at stake or to tap into what the ACLU is organizing or planning around this case or just to learn more. Check out
2: ACLU.org. We're counsel in two of the cases. One is the EEOC versus RGGR Harris Funeral Homes, which is, which is a mouthful, but if you just Google <laughs> Amy Stevens, A-I-M-E-E Stevens. She was the transgender woman who was fired. She is our client. She is who we are defending at the Supreme Court. You will be directed to our website where there is tons of information about the cases. And then if you follow us on Twitter or on Instagram at ACLU, there'll be information about not only Amy Stevens' case, but the two sexual orientation cases as well that are going to be argued on October 8th. So that's a good place to just find information and background, as well as information about rallies and other things that are happening leading up to October 8th. And for anyone who is able to come to D.C., there will be a huge presence outside the Supreme Court. And that's another way that people can physically show up, because the other thing is. This is the first transgender civil rights case ever heard before the United States Supreme Court. It is a day that we will remember. And we want to show that the trans community had more people defending them outside the court that day than the other side had saying that we shouldn't exist. Um, And so people can show up if they're able. People can organize rallies in their hometown. There's a lot we can do both to send the message that this matters, both to the individuals who are watching who need to see that, the LGBTQ folks in particular, but then also to the people in power who need. To see that we have allies by our side,
0: yes, absolutely. Chase, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you for all you're doing and covering oh, so so much to think about, and also like so much to do.
1: bust out all of the protest supplies because if something has ever called for a protest, this is it,
0: right. And I think um, it's worth noting that, like after um Chase and I talked about this, I did a quick Google to be like, okay, like, is someone in, you know, the city where I live planning a protest? Or is there a place that I can physically show up? And I'm going to be honest that I did not come up with uh, a link to like an invite in, a, you know, a Facebook page or like in, you know, a local ACLU groups invitation to um, a designated protest area. And so all of that is to say, I don't I'm not saying definitively that like those planned protests do not exist. Um, But I'm also saying that like maybe it's kind of on us to get it together and show up even if there's not an easy like thing to RSVP to. If you
1: know of a protest, please let us know. If you do not, let's all work on planning one because October 8th, right around the corner. Right. And um, like
0: Chase mentioned, if you are in D.C., um, there's usually a gathering at the Supreme Court on the day of oral arguments. That's an amazing option if you are in that area. But yeah, in the meantime, we are going to be paying attention to other opportunities to show up. And in the meantime, we can all also be talking about this and make this a big deal in the online spaces where we where we spend so much of our time and energy.
1: See you at the protest, Um, boo-boo. See you
0: at the protest, on the internet, and in the workplace. I actually won't see you in the workplace. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I work from home, Um, although I am wearing pants today. And you are currently (laughs) at your workplace. Luckily, I work in a workplace where um, the the protections for gender
1: identity are pretty robust. You can find us many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review, you know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714 681 2943. That's 714 681 CYGF. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Penny Packer Riggs. Our logos are by kanisha Mead. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf where Sophie carter Khan does all of our social. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.